You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 42, part five of the Gallipoli series. I realize that I've been calling this the Hellas series, which isn't appropriate on my part because the Dardanelles campaign wasn't only at the southern portion of Hellas. You have Anzac and now Suvla Bay. There's much more than just Hellas. And because of this, I snuck in the name change, now calling it the Gallipoli series. Even though I just told everybody, so I guess I'm not really sneaking anything in at all. Overall, this is much more appropriate and accurate towards the history of the Dardanelles campaign. I wanted to give you an update on the show now that we're a few weeks into 2022. First, when I was editing the last episode, I noticed a lot of background noise, and I realized my micro-sized studio has gotten a bit messy. It's noisy, and it bothers me because I can hear it in the recording. I fidget a lot when I'm recording. My arms are moving. My legs shake. Yeah, it's just who I am. And when I move around, the desk rattles along with other stuff. The microphone picks this up, especially when I have a preamp and the gain is turned up. Overall, it just doesn't make for good sound. Even though I'm working with what I got, that doesn't mean I can't make improvements. So I got a new mic stand that's not on the desk, and I also got a new microphone, which I'm super excited to be using on this episode. I owe it to you listeners to make these improvements because good sound on a podcast is one of the key objectives. So I'm hoping this will improve the quality, even if it's by a small percentage. Hey, at least it's an improvement. I also recorded a new opening, which was long overdue. I looked back to the last year around this time, and I had around 5,000 downloads. And I was super happy with that. Now, a year later, I'm approaching the 50,000 mark. So I really wanted to set a goal for the podcast in 2022, that being sound quality and marketing. It's time for me to step up my game. Super simple improvement that was easy to make on my part. All right. So on this episode... I'm going right back where I left off at Anzac. Sir Ian Hamilton's focus is now on a new landing at Suvla Bay, and the key to this success would be a diversion attack at Hellas by the Brits and at Anzac Cove from the Aussies and Kiwis, along with some territorial soldiers. Before I recap the last episode, let me share with you what I'm going to be slowly sipping on. For this episode, I'm drinking Elijah Craig's Small Batch Kentucky Bourbon. Fear of legal drinking age, of course. And of course, if you're a responsible drinker and are interested in maybe drinking bourbon, in my opinion, Elijah Craig is the perfect starter. It's smooth, it's easy to drink, and you really get that sweeter note that bourbon offers. I have some bold, robust, really smoky bourbons in my cabinet, like a Woodford double barrel. That's a much stronger, smokier bourbon. My wife isn't a fan, but I do love the strong ones. But Elijah Craig is, it's easy going. A good one, not only to start with, but just if you're looking for a mellow sipper for the occasion, whatever it may be. I sometimes will drink bourbon with ice. 
Sometimes I drink it straight up. R- really depends on what time, type of mood I'm in and the weather. I, I mean, if there's snow out, I'm just going to hold the ice. There's no need for it. The right way to drink bourbon is whatever makes you happy. Now, some of you might know this, but for those that don't, Every bourbon is a whiskey, but not every whiskey is a bourbon. For whiskey to be called a bourbon, it needs to meet some strict standards during the production process. Over 90% of the world's bourbons are produced in Kentucky, and the majority produced in Kentucky are around the southern parts. And why is Kentucky so great for producing bourbon? Well, it's because Kentucky sits on a, a blue limestone And when the water flows through it, it picks up and adds distinct minerals to the flavor of the water. Kentucky water is hard, meaning it has high pH and high minerals from the limestone. The soil in Kentucky is rich and fertile, making it a great place to grow ingredients needed for bourbon. Kentucky also has weather extremes, very hot in summer, very cold in the winter. Aging bourbon in barrels does well with these extreme changes. But as long as it meets the following rules, technically it doesn't have to come from Kentucky, which is why you'll see more states producing it. And the rules for whiskey to be called a bourbon are, it has to be distilled from a mixture of grains or mash that's at least 51% corn. The corn gives bourbon its distinct sweet flavor. Most will shoot for the 70% mark. It must be aged in new charred oak barrels, which cannot contain any additives or colorings. And for it to be labeled straight bourbon whiskey, it has to be aged for a minimum of two years. The mash must be distilled at 160 proof or less, then aged until it is no more than 125 proof or less. Then, before bottling, the bourbon is filtered and diluted down to no less than 80 proof. And voila, you got bourbon. Cheers. Uh, Elijah Craig, that is a smooth one, I'll tell you. All right. Let's say I recap the last episode. This campaign so far, it's a perfect standout statement for what the Great War really stood for. And I've spoken about this on previous episodes. In my opinion, the Great War stood for death, destruction, mayhem, and the little to no regard for the high price and lives lost. This is exactly what has happened up to this point at Gallipoli. They send wave after wave of attacks. The casualty counts just continue to build to this crazy number after each battle. And the overall objective for the Dardanelles should really have been in question at this point, not only by the generals, but also by politicians. Imagine if they would have taken all these troops and put them on the Western Front this early in the war. It's a possibility they might have driven the Germans out of Belgium right back to Berlin. But that wasn't the case. On the 12th of July, the British 155th and 157th Brigades from the 52nd Division, along with the French, kicked off another attack aiming to take the Akibabanola sector, as well as the trenches at Caribes Dier. Gains were made, 
Turkish trench lines had been taken, the British sent up the 1st Naval Brigade of the R&D to help hold the ground. Losses were high, about 13,500 combined casualties taken in just a couple of days' time. And with the help from artillery, the British were able to repel Turkish counterattacks. After these attacks, with the encouragement from General Birdwood, Sir Ian Hamilton started to focus his attention on a new landing at Suvla Bay, with diversion attacks coming from Anzac and a portion of Hellas. By the way, I have a picture of a map of Suvla Bay and Anzac on my social media after the last episode released. It's always nice to have a reference when learning about these battles, and when this releases, I'll also have new maps up. And like many other attack plans for the Great War, this too contained a lot of, well, a lot of what we call manure, pure crap. Hamilton created the new Ninth Corps made up of inexperienced troops and an inexperienced commander. Some revisions had to be made to the initial attack plans because they just flat out weren't good. After some revisions, the diversion attacks at Hellas were launched on the 6th of August. The 88th Brigade from the 29th Division launched an attack on the Turkish lines north of Krithianola. They were to push along Fir Tree Spur that runs parallel to Goli and Y Beach. On the 7th of August, the 125th and the 127th Brigades from the 42nd Division were to attack along Krithia Spur, then up to Krithianola. The goal was to draw the Turks out from the center, then eliminate them. Each of these diversion attacks ultimately failed, which then led to Lehman von Sanders' confidence in his men at Hellas, so he ended up sending reserves up to Anzac. These attacks from the British from the 6th of August to the 13th was some of the most brutal fighting Gallipoli had seen. And now, I'll get into the Anzac diversion. The diversion attack by the Anzacs started on the 6th of August and is really where the core of this plan lies. Because ultimately, this is what some commanders saw as the last hope for victory at Gallipoli. The forces at Anzac were supposed to deliver the punch that would knock the Turks down for the count. The 1st Australian Division would assault onto Lone Pine during the afternoon of the 6th. And this would supposedly focus the Turks' attention on Lone Pine, clearing the path for the left assaulting columns who would swing around and take the Turks from the rear. The goal for the left column was to see Chinook Bear and Hill 971 by the end of day on August 7th, followed by final attacks on Neck and Chessboard. There were some generals that were in support of this plan and others that were not. One who believed this would work out fantastically was Brigadier General John Monash. I want to quote him in full because his confidence is vibrant, yet his arrogance could be considered ignorant. He said the following regarding the attack plan for the Anzacs. I am very well satisfied both with the policy and the progress of our operation. We have dropped the Churchill way of rushing in before we are ready and hardly knowing what we are going to do next in favor of the Kitchener way of making careful and complete preparations on lines which just can't go wrong. For that's what's going to happen in Gallipoli in a very little while and what's going to happen in Flanders and Belgium later on. Brigadier General John Monash, Headquarters, 4th Australian Brigade. But like I said, 
Others weren't so quick to show their enthusiasm for this new plan as Menashe was, mainly because they were aware of what awaits them. A major from the first of six Gurkha rifles said, When the method of attack was disclosed to me confidentially that afternoon, I gasped. It is to be remembered that Anzac is completely invested by the enemy, that no one has been able to reconnoiter the ground. Outside of that, no one can absolutely guarantee the map. The more the plan was detailed as the time got near, the less I liked it. Major Cecil Allenson, the first of six Gurkha rifles. And his concerns were legitimate. The plan for the Gurkhas was to put them on a night march just like the rest, across unknown treacherous ground. Four out of the seven officers in his regiment never did a night march. What commander wouldn't have some concerns? This wasn't an, oh, you had some trouble, better luck next time sort of situation. No, this lack of training could mean death for many. There's no reset buttons here. At Lone Pine, the Turks did as best they could to fortify their trenches. They layered pine wood logs and earth to provide cover and spread out barbed wire everywhere they could. It was the job of the 1st Brigade from the 1st Australian Division to launch their diversionary attack through Lone Pine. The key would be to get the men through the killing zone as fast as possible because they knew it was going to be hell. The soldiers dug a series of shallow trenches leading out into no man's land. They were dug up to just 50 yards or so from the Turks. The point of this was to provide less ground the men would have to be exposed through. If the attacks went in their favor, these trenches would then be used as communication trenches. The intentions of having runners going back and forth through them round the clock. Three days prior to the attack on the 6th, a bombardment kicked off intending to destroy all the barbed wire that the Turks had laid. At 1400 hours on the 6th, right beneath no man's land, three mines were detonated in order to uproot a good portion of earth and provide cover for the men. The last half hour of the artillery bombardment violently increased before the men went over the top in hopes this would obliterate the Turkish covered trenches, which would force them to pull back or to get into deeper cover. White patches were cut and sewn on the back of the soldiers' clothing and armed to distinguish themselves. And I do understand where their heads are at with this, but using white in a dirty combat zone, to me, was just about as useless as udders on a bull. They weren't going to stay white very long. It's like a parent telling their child to go play in the dirt, but make sure you wear that white shirt. <laughs> sure. You'd have to think these markers were already getting discolored from the smoke and the dirt from, from the bombardment even prior to going over the top. But hey, I'm sure they were working with what they had for the time. Regardless what condition the cloths were in, the time for going over the top had come. All the men, even the officers, carried on them their rifle and bayonet, dry rations, ammunition of course, picks and shovels, and sandbags among other items. When the whistle blew, waves of men went climbing over the top, running through no man's land, hoping to make it across. Turkish machine gunners lit it up like a wildfire. A hailstorm of rounds hissed through no man's land. Gunners were spraying from left to right, and the assistant gunners kept feeding the beast more and more rounds.
As you can imagine, men were being torn apart everywhere, dropping like flies. Some were finding cover in the cratered earth that the bombs and mine explosion had created. Some were being flung through the air from the Turkish artillery. The dead and wounded were starting to amass. While some of the men made it to the first occupied trench lines, others were ordered to run past into the support trenches, which would cause the fleeing Turks to turn back around, giving them no place to escape to. The boxing the enemy in method was working. The Turks were taking heavy casualties in their own trench system. Some of the men from the 1st Brigade, as they were running beyond the first lines, seeing the Turks running beneath them in their communication trenches. Because they couldn't stop in the open and take good aim, while running, they fired from the hip into the trench, dropping a good number of Turks. This reminds me of an ambush method used in the military. It could be a troop ambush on foot or a convoy. In an ambush, you always want to initiate with your most heavily casually producing weapons along with establishing sectors of fire for your team so that every ground of the ambush zone is covered. In this case, Claymore mines an AT4 or an 84mm recoilless rifle, 240s, or, or whatever the most casualty producing weapon you have for the time. You'd want to initiate by first taking out the lead or rear, working your way in. Once you initiate, then you would unleash everything you have, rifles, grenades, etc., until everyone is eliminated. This is a very simple style ambush. There's much more to it than that, but the key is boxing the enemy in. In a troop style ambush, if you're on the side taking the hit, your best hopes for survival is to charge towards the enemy, hoping you make it through. If you stand your ground where you're being ambushed, you're done. And a convoy really is the same concept, but if you're the lead or rear vehicle, you're you're kind of screwed. Anyways, this is the sort of method of thinking they used when they sent the soldiers running past the front line to box the enemy in. Very clever, and it seemed to be doing some good damage to the enemy. At the northern section of Lone Pine, the men had managed to secure the ground. However, what had, ev had evolved was dozens and dozens of small skirmishes as both sides were spread out in the maze of trench systems. This resulted in a good number of soldiers locking up into hand-to-hand -hand combat. The bayonet played a key role for the men on both sides. With all their might, each soldier, with everything he had, fought to drive that sharp steel into his enemy, putting an end to that person's life. A private described on one of his encounters in the trenches saying the following, I was trying to get my breath when from the right end of the traverse, a big fellow of a Turk came bolting along the trench. He took no notice of me because close at his heels were two Aussies. And as he passed me, I raised my rifle and let him have it in the middle of the back, almost at the same time as the other two. He went down like a pole-axed bull, and the three of us then followed on down the trench to be met by some Turks who came at us suddenly and savagely. I lunged at the nearest, but my bayonet stuck in his leather equipment, and for that moment, I was helpless. Instantly, he raised his rifle to shoot me, but before he could, there was an awful bang alongside my ear, and he crumbled at my feet. My mate behind 
had put his rifle over my shoulder and had shot him. But that discharge nearly blew my head off. Private Charles Duke, 4th New South Wales Battalion, end quote. Imagine the setting at Lone Pine. Up to now, the Turks have built quite an elaborate trench system with the norms such as front lines, communication lines, and reserve lines. And there's miles upon miles of these trench systems. So when the Aussies managed to get into the trenches and secure them, even though I'm not sure secure is the best word at this point, but they're there and they haven't been pushed out. So now the soldiers from the 1st Brigade from the 1st Australian Division began working in teams to clear out the network of trench systems. And just around every corner or hiding in a dugout was a small group of Turks waiting to ambush them back. Well, let's be honest, if it was just one Turk, he probably would be hiding for his life and wasn't looking to ambush anything. Only small packs of them would gather and decide to fight back. But for a period of time, it developed into a deadly game of cat and mouse for both sides. Really, who's the cat and who's the mouse? Who's hunting who? By 1800 hours, the front lines were deemed secured by the Australians. Who determined this was secure? I don't know, but I believe it was a little premature to say Lone Pine was secure at this time. Overall, the Turks were caught with their pants down, which caused a delay in them reacting to the situation with a counterattack. Once word got to Mustafa Kemal, he ordered the 1st to 57th Regiment to move at once. A major from the 57th later recalled seeing the trenches at Lone Pine being overran and then getting the call. He said the following. From the regimental headquarters at the back of Mortar Ridge, you could see clearly there was a lot of dust raised by the shells at Lone Pine. I could not see through it, but when the bombardment there ceased, we heard infantry fire. Like after thunder, you hear the rain beginning. And the observers beside us said, the English are getting in our trenches. Our observation of this bombardment had given us the impression that the trenches subjected to it would not be in condition to repel the attack. There had been much damage and heavy loss. At that moment, an order arrived by telephone lines from Mustafa Kemal Pasha. The battalion of reserve will move at once to Lone Pine. On the way, we fixed bayonets. The moment we turned into that valley, we came into fire. From your men at the head of it, Near there, I met the commander of the battalions which had been holding the center of Lone Pine Front. I asked, what had happened? But he was clearly very shocked. He kept on saying, we're lost, we're lost. I saw it was useless to ask him for information, and I didn't want to lose time. Major Zeki Bey, 1st Battalion, 57th Regiment, 5th Army, end quote. Zeki Bey was lent to the Australian Historical Mission to Gallipoli in 1919 by the Ottoman General Staff to provide his first-hand account of the campaign from the Turkish point of view. The Major and his men were quickly launched into this counterattack. But Zeki Bey noticed something very important that could play in his favor. He noticed that the Aussies had confined themselves to these narrow trench systems. So instead of just launching his men into them to duke it out like the others had been doing, 
He ordered his men to start lobbing bombs into the trenches, and, and these bombs are what we know today as grenades. The situation is going to get very gruesome for the Australians. First off, they didn't have any bombs to throw back. They didn't have the supply on hand, and when they requested some, it was denied. Here's the grim picture for those poor guys. These bombs are being lobbed everywhere. Say one landed by the foot, it would be kicked away, but there would be another one to the left and to the right. They were being lobbed, I mean, everywhere. They were like ripe dates falling from a palm tree. All that some could do was hit the ground, get themselves closest to the bottom edge of the trench as possible before the bombs exploded, hoping they would make it out alive before the next one dropped in. The men were so desperate, they began to, to catch and or quickly snatch up the bombs that were just lobbed at them and try to fling them back at the Turks. But these are on timed fuses, just as grenades are today. So many of the bombs exploded in hand, causing a grotesque macabre of, macabre of mutilated bodies. Pick up a baseball or a cricket ball or anything around that size for this matter and pose as if you were going to throw it just as you were taught to throw a ball. Now pretend that's a bomb about to explode in your hand. Most people have seen the damage fireworks can do, and usually it's from drunk partygoers. You know, hands and fingers will go, and sometimes eyes. And these are just fireworks. A very minor, I, I, I say very minor explosive compared to a hand bomb in 1915. Hands and arms were being blown off. It's just a given. In some instances, torsos were cut open along with a skull. There was dead, mutilated bodies piling up everywhere in the trench systems at Lone Pine once Zeki launched his assault. I think it was far from being secure at this point. The Turks now threw their local reserves into the fight. They were determined to take back every inch that the Australians had gained. The Turks' counterattacks came on hard and the Aussies were first forced to pull back to form a defensive position. One private recalled that immediately after he pulled back, an intense amount of bullets came their way. The sound of the bullets was snapping everywhere as they went past. His group was ordered to the parapet to start firing at the oncoming Turks. Upon peering over the trench to start firing, six men were dropped by headshots in less than a minute's time. Six of the eight men from that small group went down almost immediately. This private also took a shot in the head, but it was just a, one of those that skim over the skull. What do they call that? Just a scratch. He was still in this fight. Just him and the lieutenant. He was lucky this time. The 1st Brigade from the 1st Australian Division was in dire straits and needed help fast. More battalions were ordered up to reinforce the line, one of them being the Tasmanian 12th Battalion. The men moving up found it very difficult to get to the lines where they were needed most. It was as if roadblocks were laid down. But in this case, what was blocking them was the dead that had been piling up. A major described the narrow trenches in some areas being piled up so bad that they had to either crawl or walk carefully over the bodies. I think we've all stood on someone's back. You can, it's very unbalanced. 
Imagine walking or running over a pile of bodies. And even sadder, they could hear survivors at the bottom of these piles pleading for help. But there was nothing they could do. They had to get to the lines as fast as they could. Many of the wounded on the bottom of those piles died in agony. The situation was desperate for both sides. The Turks couldn't accept defeat at Lone Pine, and the Australians were hanging on for dear life. And remember, this diversion attack was supposed to be the backbone for this new landing in hopes of a new breakthrough. By the time August 9th came, both sides were just completely exhausted. For a few days, the fighting had gone on like this. Constant machine gun and rifle fire, along with hand bombs. Men were peering over the parapets of the trenches, constantly being dropped. The fighting was constant, and in this time, it's estimated that the Turks took over 5,000 casualties and the Aussies over 2,000. And what was gained in favor of the Australians at Lone Pine was roughly about 100 yards. Let's think about that. Between the few days of fighting, casualties were piling up. And all it stood for was roughly around 100 yards gained. It would take them years to reach Constantinople if the fighting continued at this pace. Now, this attack at Lone Pine was intended to be a distraction from the left flank, which was supposed to hook around and take the Turks from the rear. The author Peter Hart and his team do such an amazing job with their research and the information they're able to gather on the Great War. In his book, Gallipoli, he details the plans for the assaulting columns. And because I'm not going to so much focus on the exact details of the plans, I'll try to sum this up. If you want the exact detail, detail after detail, I would suggest you get his book. And it really is an amazing read. As the assaulting columns moved out of Anzac during the evening hours, the right covering force was made up of the New Zealand Mounted Rifles and the Otago Mounted Rifles. Their task was to eliminate any Turkish post guarding the routes up to Saribar. There was a plan to conceal the Mounted Rifles movement, and it actually worked. For several days prior, the river-class destroyer Kohn would shell old number 3 post and illuminate it between the hours of 2100 to 2110 and then again from 2120 to 2130. And they continued the shelling the same evening as the men were moving out, but with the intentions on concealing their movement. And it worked. The Kiwis caught the Turks off guard in their shelters. The Turkish posts on Destroyer Hill and Tabletop were taken by the Wellington Mounted Rifles, which cleared the way for the New Zealand Infantry Brigade, which made up the right assaulting column. The Otago and Canterbury Mounted Rifles got into a quick skirmish and captured Bowchops Hill north of Old Number 3 Post. This allowed the left column to advance, which was made up of the 29th Indian Brigade and the 4th Australian Brigade. The left covering force, made up of two battalions from the 40th Brigade, was to, to clear Damajilik Bear to the north. This would overall secure the left flank. One of the biggest concerns for these guys moving during the night was exactly that. Moving during the night. A lot of men on this movement had managed to survive since the April 25th landings. They're well seasoned by now, if you know what I mean. 
And yes, they have had their share of night attacks and battles during the evening, but not night movements. This is different. A night movement is moving the men all together in sync as a unit in stealth mode under the cover of darkness. Most haven't done this and moving through unknown terrain makes matters worse. <clears throat> night movements are difficult even in modern times. For those with experience, you know what I'm saying. For those that haven't experienced this in the military, it's not how it looks in the movies or commercials. You know, men moving all quietly and cool looking. Yes, they're moving quietly or as stealthily as they can. And yes, you get from point A to point B, but there's a lot of in between that they don't show. Even with night vision, it can be very difficult if there's not enough moonlight out or any type of lighting for it to pick up. It's often difficult to see the man in front, beside, or behind you. You follow what we call cat eyes or infrared reflective sort of tape, although it's not really tape. We put them on the back of our packs, headgear, and helmets so that you can be seen at night and the patterns used were distinct to your company. I'll, I'll paint a picture what moving at night typically look like for a squad breaking bush or, or moving at night. And I say breaking bush because squads don't normally move in the open and I'm talking outside of urban terrain, of course. Point man or compass man moves out, which you never wanna be because he's the guy going through all the big ass spider webs. And where there's big ass spider webs, there's usually big ass spiders that end up on you somewhere. And that's never fun. It's pitch black in the dead of night, the time when people are usually sound asleep in bed. You got your NVGs on or your night vision goggles and hope you have a decent pair that hasn't been beaten up or handed down. You're tactically moving through the terrain. You're struggling to make out your buddies moving in front of you. All you can see is infrared lights of green and dark blobs through your eyes, almost fuzzy-like. The trees are starting to look like your buddies and your buddies are starting to look like the bush. Major frustration starts to set in and any opportunity you get where you can grab the person in front, you whisper sweet nothings to him. He's saying the same thing to the guy in front of him and you're being told the same by the guy behind you. <laughs> By the time you form a cigar-shaped perimeter or triangle, Michigan depending, there's a lot of pissed off people in that gathering. There's a lot of silent snarling and cursing under the breath. There were some shenanigans of words said during these times, and all I can do is laugh now because every movement we did ended up being a success. And I credit that to working alongside some of the best professionals this country produced. But my point to this is, even in today's modern warfare or modern military, it can be difficult moving troops in the middle of the night. Now, go back to this time and place at Gallipoli. Think about moving those men during the night. It's dark. The terrain is extremely rough at Anzac and Gallipoli as a whole for that matter. They had no training for this, it was a serious gamble sending the men out into the night over unfamiliar ground. The 4th Brigade was to climb up Abdul Rahman to Hill 971 
while the 29th Indian Brigade headed south towards Hill Q. They had Greek guides leading in some areas, but this didn't seem to help because they too were having the same difficulties moving. There were constant halts by the columns, which added to the frustration and put them behind on time. The goalies were narrow, full of shrub, and in many cases, the columns moved in single file. It was taking the men around three hours just to move 600 yards at Taylor's Gap. Again, I'll have some pictures of maps on my social media pages when this releases. It always helps to see a map first. At one point, the 4th Brigade became totally lost because they found that in the dark, each ridge looked the same and they couldn't determine which one to climb. By the early morning, morning hours, they were way off from Hill 971. Brigadier General John Monash, commander of the 4th Brigade, determined his men weren't getting anywhere and ordered his men to halt at daylight. And the 29th really wasn't doing any better. Come early morning, they too were way off from their objective, Hill Q. The poop really hit the fan for the New Zealand Brigade, who was commanded by Brigadier General Francis Johnston. And before I move on, I'll give you a little side note on Johnston. Francis Earl Johnston, born in Wellington, New Zealand in 1871, sent to England for his education attended the Royal Military College and was commissioned in 1891. He served in the Sudan for the Dangola expedition in 1896 and also served in the Second Boer War. Prior to the outbreak of the war in 1914, he was serving in India. He had quite this reputation for getting into disagreements with other officers. A man who didn't work well with others. It's actually amazing he made it as far as he did. He was also a very ill man. He suffered from alcoholism and neurasthenia, which is a fancy word for emotional issues. He had to be hospitalized on several occasions, even during the Dardanelles campaign. He really wasn't fit for duty and had no business commanding anything at Gallipoli or, or any front at that. He ended up leaving Gallipoli altogether in November to be with his wife in Cairo. Johnston's life ended when he returned to the Western Front in late 1917 as the commander of the New Zealand Rifle Brigade. While he was visiting the front lines on the 7th of August, a sniper had taken him out. I'm very intrigued by Johnston, not because he was great, but because he made some really bizarre decisions. And with all his mental and health issues, I would like to know how he made it as far as he did as a military officer. So, the Canterbury Battalion from the New Zealand Brigade was supposed to push up to Sasley Bietdier, while the Otago, Wellington, and Auckland Battalions moved up to Shalokdier. All four battalions were to rendezvous on Rodendrone Bridge between 0100 and 0200 hours. But the New Zealand Brigade ran into the same problem as the 4th and the Indian Brigade. Even though they didn't have as much ground to cover, they were still moving in the dark and the terrain was described by the men as horrendous. They were surrounded by ridges. They were confused. The guides were just as lost as they were. There were delays and the men had become extremely frustrated by this. But even with all this and being behind schedule, 
the Wellington Battalion managed to make it to Rodendron Bridge on by 0430. And here's where things got dicey. After the Wellingtons made it to their objective, Johnston made the decision to halt any attack until the whole force of the New Zealand Brigade was assembled. The Canterbury Battalion at this point was far off from their objective. A lieutenant colonel from the Canterburys later described their situation leading up to this, saying the following. Here was a dilemma. The whole success of the push depended on us doing our job on time. I was up against it and on my own, having to decide quickly. To obey orders and occupy the hills, I thought would do no good to anyone. I felt also that the tail of my battalion, where the machine guns were, must be far in the rear, as we had been moving practically in single file along the narrow ravine for some hours and it's easy to lose touch in the dark. Therefore, to give the order to occupy the hills would, I felt sure, leave my men thinly extended over much country and easily be mopped up by the enemy at daylight. I decided to disobey orders and take the battalion back to the beach and so save it intact to fight another day. I knew I would be broken for it and thought of the disgrace to my family in New Zealand, but felt it was the only way to save the men. I gave the order to retire. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Gethin Hughes, Canterbury Battalion, New Zealand Brigade. This being a very bad decision on Hughes' part can be weighed out. He disobeyed an order, yet some feel it was the right decision by thinking of his men first. But Johnston was also violating a direct order given by Birdwood, and that order was, he was not to await on any delays, he would continue pushing forward regardless of who hadn't made it up. They needed to secure Chinook Bear before dawn, then push down through Battleship Hill before 0430 hours. Remember, each success from the Anzacs was dependent on other success, if that, if that makes sense. The situation was what it was, and the advancement didn't resume until 0630 hours. Reserves from the Turkish 5th Division were drawn out away from Chinook Bear by the partial achievements at Lone Pine. However, once the threat was noticed by the oncoming New Zealand Brigade moving up, the 9th Division commanded by Colonel Hans Kanengeise was dispatched. And because of Johnston's delay in pushing forward, the 9th Division made it to Chinook Bear by 0700, well in advance of the Kiwis. The Turks from the 9th now had a clear picture of the men moving towards them. Kanengeise described the encounter, saying the following. The English approached slowly, in single file, splendidly equipped and with white bands on their left arms, apparently very tired, and were crossing a hillside to our flank, emerging in continually increasing numbers from the valley below. I immediately sent an order to my infantry. This was the 20-strong artillery covering platoon, instantly to open fire. I received the answer, we can only commence to fire when we receive orders from our battalion commander. This was too much for me altogether. I ran to the spot and threw myself among the troops who were lying in a small trench. What I said, I cannot recollect, but they began to open fire almost immediately, 
The English lay down without answering our fire or apparently moving in any other way. They gave me the impression that they were glad to be spared further climbing. Colonel Hans Kahnengeiser, 9th Division, end quote. More delays set in as Johnston and other senior officers contemplated their next move on this objective. But as the delayed time continued on, this gave the 9th Division more time to get in place and add to the defensive positions. When word got to Major General Alexander Godley, commander of the NZNA Division, he was furious and showed no restraint in showing how upset he was. He ordered an attack on Chinook Bear at once. Johnston had no option but to act on this order. I, I wish Johnston would have survived long enough to have written his account on these battles and the decisions he made because, like I said, they're really bizarre. He ends up just sending forward just one battalion accompanied by two companies of the 2nd of 10th Gurkhas into the assault. Yes, just one battalion, the Auckland Battalion. Johnston sent them in for the attack at 1030. But again, because the 9th had time to prepare, 500 Turkish laid waiting for their arrival. With bayonets fixed, the men were sent over the hillside. The greetings from the rifles and machine guns came with a murderous rage. Some found little pockets in the earth just enough to provide cover. Others charged for the nearest Turkish trench. Needless to say, they were decimated and didn't stand a chance. They were sent in to do the impossible. They were sent to their deaths. Johnston then ordered Lieutenant Colonel Malone's Wellington Battalion over. Malone flat out refused, sta stating he would not send his men over to commit suicide and that he would wait to move them under the cover of darkness. Malone and Johnston had a shady past. Needless to say, they didn't care for each other. And just then... Orders arrived from Godley. He told the commanders that all offensive operations were to cease for the time being. Overall, this mission up to this point was a complete failure. None of the objectives have been achieved. And folks, I'm going to wrap this up right here. I had a feeling these episodes were going to start running a little longer because there's so much taking place. There's so much to detail about the events at Gallipoli, and I'm having a blast absorbing this history. I hope 2022 is starting out great for everybody. My schedule is about to get heavy again, so I'm going to try to push this next episode out by February 7th, and after that, it's back to the grind for another four months or so. Thank you for listening to this episode and your continued support for the show. I appreciate each and every one of you. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.